this life, there are words we say that cause joy or bring comfort. Then there are words that cause pain. And sometimes these are words you can't take back. Your ACT results came in. What happened, Donnie? I don't know. How'd you get such a low score? I thought you were studying. I don't know, Dad. I was. It was just really hard for me. I hardly knew any of the answers. There goes Northwestern. It's all the sacrificing we did. You really let us down, Donnie. You're such a disappointment. Listen to me. Jill told us you guys are having some issues. I mean, what's going on? Can I help you with anything? We're fine. We don't need any advice. Tom, really? What's happening? Why do you always feel the need to butt in? I know you're the perfect son with the perfect marriage and the perfect kids. Tom, we have issues too. I did not ask you to come here, so why don't you just leave? Just talk to me. What is happening with leave. you? Leave. I don't care if I ever see you again. Go. Why don't you talk to me anymore? We haven't been on a date in over a year. I don't know, can we talk about this later? No! You keep brushing this off. We need to talk about it now. Fine. What's wrong, Tom? Is there someone else? No, there's no one else. Then what's going on? Why won't you give me a straight answer? I just don't think I love you anymore. I don't care if I ever see you again. You're such a disappointment. Well, that guy was a jerk. <laughs> what goes through your mind when you see scenes like that? Is it scorn? I can't believe there are some people who talk to others like that. Is it pity? And I feel really bad for that guy. He just screwed up his life. Or is it a warning? I hope I never, ever get to that point. Or is it a mirror? It's a little bit too close to home. Have you ever said words you can't take back? You disgust me. Why can't you be more like your brother? You're not my real dad. I don't even know why I married you. I'll be happier when you're gone. These are the words that are the dividing lines in our relationships. Once they come out of your mouth, there's no going back. You can't pretend like things were the way they were before. And it's not just that they redefine the future of your relationship, they also change how you see the past. Recently, I read a series of books. They're these big, fat, epic war stories. They had all sorts of adventure and intrigue, and they're, they're like a thousand pages long each. And when I got to, towards the end of the third book, I'm 3,000 pages into this thing, I suddenly discover, it is revealed, that the people I thought were the heroes were the villains all along. I'd been rooting for the bad guys the whole time, and I had to go back and reinterpret, rethink how I saw the entire story. 
These kind of moments are like that. They, they make you go back and say, what, what was really going on in this relationship before that came out? And it doesn't just make you rethink the relationship, it makes you rethink yourself when you say them. Is that what I really mean? Is that how I feel? Am I that sort of person? What do you do when you say the words you can't take back? We're going to be looking at one of the most famous stories of words you can't take back. It's in the Gospel of John, one of the biographies of Jesus. We're going to be in chapter 13 and chapter 18. going to bounce back a little bit, but we can start in chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me there. This is the story of Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' first followers, one of his closest friends. Peter was sort of the, the first among equal among the inner circle of disciples, Jesus' second in command. Peter got to do all sorts of amazing things in his life. He got to walk on the water with Jesus. He got to go up on a mountain and Jesus revealed his full glory to him. He was the first one to realize Jesus really was the promised Messiah and announce it to the world. Peter was passionate, he was bold, and above all, Peter was confident. Maybe a little bit too confident sometimes. On the night before Jesus died, Thursday night, he had a meal with his disciples. It's a Passover meal, and over the meal, he was talking to them about what would happen next. And he, he told his disciples, I'm about to leave. And they, they really didn't understand this because they thought, well, we've just arrived, right? Like, we, we showed up here in Jerusalem for this week because this is the week when you become king. So they, they, they couldn't figure this out. So Peter asked a clarifying question, and this is what happens in verse 36. Simon Peter asked Jesus, Lord... Where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. There's that confidence. There's that boldness. But right in that moment, Jesus delivers a punch in the gut and he says, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. What? disown you? Is that what you just said? Three times before the rooster crows. You're, you're talking about tonight, like in the next 12 hours. Like uh, Peter did stupid things all the time, but one thing you couldn't say about Peter was that he was disloyal. I mean, he, he was going to stick with you thick and thin. He meant what he said, right? He's going to deny you in, in, tonight? How, how do you process that? See, this is Peter's problem. He's confident, he's self-assured, but being self-assured has a dark side because self-assurance will blind you. Self-assurance will blind you. Peter was blind to the reality of his own heart. He saw himself as loyal. He saw himself as the hero. But Jesus could see things that Peter couldn't. He knew what was really going on inside. Now, I am a pretty good driver, and how, how many of you would also say, you're a pretty good driver, above average, better than most people on the road, okay? I'm not surprised that you say that. Uh, surveys have consistently shown that 80 to 90% of people think they are in the top half of drivers, <laughs> which means at least half of you are fooling yourselves, okay? But really, I am a good driver. <laughs> Except when Michelle is in the car, for some reason... I mean, no one has to remind me of what the speed limit is when I'm driving by myself, so I don't know. She's always very polite about it, of course, but when she says something, I'm like, oh, come on. 
I, I drive this road every day. I know what the speed limit is. I'm not doing anything crazy. I'm just going with the flow of traffic or what the flow of traffic should be if these people were driving a reasonable speed. I'm pretty sure that cop we just passed is going to agree with me. Oh, look here, he's coming this way. <laughs> you don't always see your flaws, your mistakes until someone's there to witness them. You don't see the trouble you're headed into, but a lot of times other people do. You wanna do something scary? Ask someone what your blind spots are. That's an interesting conversation. A lot of times though, we don't wanna hear the answer to that question. And even if we did, we might not believe what people said. And in some of the other accounts of uh, this story, uh, Peter actually says, he, he says, look, I, all these other people, they might deny you, but me, I never will. He, he was so confident. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a book that was published. It was called The True Story of the Three Little Pigs. You ever see this book? It's a story of the three little pigs, but it's told from the perspective of the wolf. There's been a whole bunch of these stories in the last several decades where they, they retell a classic story from the perspective of the bad guy. Uh, the musical Wicked or uh, the movie Maleficent or books from the perspective of Captain Hook or the Evil Queen or Grendel, all these uh, retellings from the bad guy's point of view. But the thing that all of these stories have in common is that they always make the bad guy look like the hero or, or at the very least a misunderstood victim. Uh, the wolf, he wasn't trying to do anything wrong. He just needed to borrow a cup of sugar from his neighbors and he happened to have a cold, which explains all the huffing and puffing. It was all a misunderstanding. <laughs> it's what you expect, right? When someone tells their own story, that's how they're going to present themselves. It'd be very odd if you opened up a book and the narrator started off by saying, I'm a horrible person and I'm so glad the forces of evil united to overthrow me. Like that just doesn't make any sense. You are always either the hero or maybe the victim, or, or at least the innocent bystander, but you are never, ever the villain in your own story. It's the reason we have a hard time seeing our faults. When we tell the story of our life, we, we place ourselves not in that category. And it takes a lot for us to say, I actually am the villain. Take something dramatic. Turn with me to chapter 18. After the meal, Jesus took his disciples out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they were there and some soldiers came along with some of the religious leaders and they arrested Jesus. They, they called out and asked for him. And this is what happens in verse four. I want you to pay attention here to how Jesus responds to the situation. It's gonna be important later on in the message. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they told him. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now pay attention to how Peter reacts because it's a little bit different. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. I mean, how much more proof do you need that Peter is going to keep his commitment? I would die for you. I'd fight for you. I'm ready to go to battle. This is proof of his loyalty, right? It's also proof of his complete misunderstanding of what's going on. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus and Peter are actually thinking the same thing is about to happen. 
that it's all about to go down, that Jesus is gonna uh, receive his crown, he's gonna claim his kingdom, he's gonna win his people. But Peter and Jesus see the way that's happening very, very differently. P- Peter thinks it's time to fight and Jesus thinks it's time to die. And, and this is a little window into why Peter was so confident in himself. He, he thinks he's on the inside track to glory and power and, and, and honor and riches. He thinks that he's riding the coattails of someone who can't be defeated. I mean, when Jesus said, I am he, did you see the way those guards fell to the ground? It's incredible. It, Peter had been with this guy. He had seen so many amazing things. Jesus can walk on water. He can command the weather. He orders demons around. One time he even raised a guy from the dead. That This is going to be so easy. a piece of cake. Rome is going down and Peter's going to be right there with Jesus. Just this weekend, it's going to happen. He's so self-confident that he thinks, I can do this. But when the fireworks are about to start, Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, put your sword away, Peter. They arrest him. They take him away. And they go to the home of the high priest, and they put on kind of a a sham trial there so they can execute him. This is how it goes down, verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, no, no, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. How did that happen? How do you go in one half an hour from chopping off ears to being afraid of the maid? Did something change in Peter's heart? I don't actually think anything changed inside Peter. I think Peter just realized that the situation wasn't what he thought. And he kept doing what he had always been doing, looking out for himself. He realized this is now a dangerous situation. I got to protect myself. If Jesus isn't going to fight, if he's going to surrender before the battle starts, then this is not a good person to be associated with. And and Peter's true motivation starts to show. When things are going well, it is so easy for us to make make ourselves look really good, to to fake it. But it's when the pressure is on that your real motivation, your real character shows up. That's why it's really interesting to see what Jesus does when the pressure's on. Look at verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus, he's threatened, but instead of folding, he doubles down. He says, I didn't say anything in secret. I was open to the world. I'm not hiding. I'm not lying. It's all out there. Compare that to what Peter does again in verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? This is Peter's chance. He can undo what he did before, grow a backbone, but he denied it. Say, no, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? How's Peter going to weasel out of this one? It's like, hey, hey, Malchus, get over here. Hey, is that that guy? You know, the guy with the, 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 the sword and the lousy aim? That, that's him, right? Yeah. And Malchus is like, um, oh, it was dark in the garden. It, was, it could be him. 
Malchus, how do you forget the guy who cut off your ear? He's right there. That's him, right? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. I I don't know what was going on inside Peter as this was happening. I mean, the first time, I kind of understand. Like, maybe he was just scared. He wasn't really thinking. It just came out of him. The second time, though, there had to have been some inner conflict. He had to think, okay, am I, am I going to follow through on this? Is, this? is this the path I'm going on? And the third time, maybe, maybe he had already committed to the lie, and it was just so easy, and it's like, well, I've already gone this far. Why, why not go all the way? You ever use that excuse for your sin? At this point in one of the other gospels, it says that, that Jesus looked across the courtyard and actually met Peter's eye. And Peter saw him, and he broke down crying, and he ran out of the building. Have you been there? You did something you swore you would never do. You broke a promise you thought you'd always keep. You crossed a line you didn't think you would cross. You said the words you can't take back. And in that moment, the truth about you was revealed. You are a lot worse off than you thought you were. And you probably always have been. Now, there's a silver lining to a moment like this. Because when this happens, you've you got to be honest with yourself. You, you can't lie to yourself anymore. The story you've been telling no longer holds up, even for you. And that's an important place to be. Radical self-honesty is a place we've all got to get to if we're really going to grow and heal. The, the good news is this. You don't actually have to get to a moment of utter failure like Peter's to do that. You just have to have the courage to actually look at yourself and say, what's really going on here? In recovery programs, 12-step programs, they, they have a step where you take a, a, a searching and fearless moral inventory. The way it works is you actually go back through your life and you, you write down, you look at all the events that have happened and behaviors and you, uh, you, you look at relationships and you say, okay, this is really what I did. This is the real reason I did it and here's how I'm going to take responsibility for what I've done. And that's a, a scary thing, but it, it, it is something that is so powerful and healing in someone's life. And that sort of moral inventory is not just for addicts. It should be the ordinary posture of any Christ follower. You've you got to be honest with, with, with where you are in your heart. The, the doctor can't prescribe treatment if you won't be examined. So, so here's a question. Are you ready to be honest with yourself? Are, are there areas of your life where you've got to say, I've got to call it what it is? You are not just under a lot of stress. You are an angry person with an out-of-control temper. You're not just ambitious, you're a workaholic. You don't just enjoy a little wine in the evening to help you relax, you've got a drinking problem. You're not just comfortable voicing your opinion, you're impatient and judgmental. You're not just confident, you're arrogant. You're not just frugal, you're stingy. You are not just giving your family the best, you are greedy and materialistic. It is not an occasional slip-up. You are addicted to pornography. You you are not just being a supportive colleague. You are having an emotional affair. You are not just processing your emotions. You are bitter and unforgiving. Are are you ready to be honest and say what is true about you? I, I mean, on any night of the year when we should be able to say, this is how bad it really is, it should be Good Friday. Christ's followers say all the time, Jesus died for my sins. It's one of the basic things we believe. But have you thought about what that really means? Jesus died for my sins. Jesus 
The, the one guy who did it perfectly, the, the, the one good and true and beautiful thing the world has produced, Jesus died. A brutal, shameful, ugly death. Stripped naked, beaten with whips, paraded through town, nails driven into his arms and his feet, hung on a plank of wood to suffocate to death while everybody watched. Jesus died for my sins, my sins. But what was happening to him was because of what I did. This was necessary because of me. This was my fault. So, so what does that mean? What does it actually say about me if the way I needed to be saved was that God himself had to show up and be tortured and killed? What does it say about my problem? How bad is the disease if the cross is the cure? We've got to be honest with ourselves. We are, we are not just people who are, you know, pretty decent, but sometimes we mess up. We're not good people who struggle in some areas. People like that don't need a cross to save them. The, the cross of Jesus removes any question about our condition. We are desperately wicked. We are profoundly guilty. And we deserve what Jesus got. And what do you do with that? Because self-assurance, it might blind you, but self-awareness, that'll crush you. It'll crush you. I used to mentor a guy who had a rough past. You wouldn't have known it if you looked down the aisle at church and saw him there, but he had a criminal background and he had done some pretty nasty stuff. And I remember him telling me many times, he said, Clayton, if people knew what I had done, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. A few years after I was mentoring that guy, I, I was working at a college and I was mentoring a young man. And if you saw this guy, you'd say, this is the stereotypical good kid, you know, straight A's, volunteering, uh, you know, he was the sort of guy who would ask to be mentored by a chaplain, like he's just like, you know, straight laced kind of kid. But he had his secrets and he had done some things. And, and he told me one time, he said, Clayton, if people knew what I had done, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. And I can tell you dozens more stories where people have said the exact same thing. People of all different types, men and women, old and young. People who've been following Jesus for years, new believers, even non-believers. People who would say, I don't believe in God, but I know that if people knew what I thought, if people heard the things that I said, if people could see into my heart, if they saw what I did alone, they would despise me, they would hate me, I would never be welcome here again. Now, every human heart, we desire two things deeply. We, we want to be fully known and we want to be fully loved. But we are convinced we cannot have both of these things. You, you, you can be known or you can be loved, but you cannot have both. Now, I can get people to love me, but to do that, I got to hide my true self. I can't let them see what's really going on. And I can let people know what's really going on, but there goes the rejection. That's what's going to happen. The moments like this in, in the life of Peter, in your life, they, they cut us to the core because we, we're suddenly known, we're exposed. It, it, it's seen what we are and now that means the love is gone. It's, it's leaving. What, what do we do in a moment like that? I want us to look back and revisit the story one more time. But I want us to visit a little bit closer what Jesus does. Let's flip back to chapter 13. Peter is boasting that he's going to lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus calls his bluff. And it says, Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, 
you will disown me three times. Think about what just happened there. Jesus predicted Peter's denial. He predicted it. Now you might say, well, Clayton, that's, that's kind of obvious. Like I, I got that part. But do you realize how important it is that he said it before it happened? Like before the arrest, before the garden, before the trial, before the cross, Jesus knew what would happen. Peter's denial is not a twist ending to Jesus. It might have surprised Peter that he did it, but it did not surprise Jesus. Now here, here's the question. When did Jesus know this was going to happen? Did it happen sometime during dinner? Jesus is like, oh my goodness, he's, he's going to let me down. Or was it sometime during the years they spent together and, and slowly over time, Jesus is like, this guy's kind of flaky. This is not going to go well, but it's just too late to pick another right-hand man. You know, I guess I'm stuck with this guy. No, Jesus knew from the very beginning. When Jesus called Peter, when he said, come and follow me, he knew. As they traveled together, they spent time together, as their friendship grew, as they, they talked late into the night and they worked side by side on things, Jesus knew then. When Jesus stooped down and washed Peter's feet, even then, he knew. Jesus had always known. And Jesus still loved Peter. He still loved Peter. His denial hurt Jesus, but Jesus was not surprised by it. And the same is true for you and me. You realize that, don't you? Jesus is not surprised by our sin. Nothing we've ever done has surprised him. What you did last night or last weekend may still have you reeling. You can't believe you did it. But Jesus, he knew about that a long, long time ago. He knew about it before you were born. He knew about it before he went to the cross. He knew about it before he made the world. Think about that. When God was deciding to make a world with you in it, he knew everything you would do. He knew every sin you would commit. He knew how much it would break his heart. And he knew how much it would cost him to win you back. And he knew that if he made this world, you would rebel and he would die. And he still did it. He must love you a whole lot if he wants you that bad. Think back to the moment in the garden. When they come to arrest Jesus, chapter 18, verse 4. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, Jesus is at a turning point here. He's got a choice. He can either reveal himself or he can protect himself. And knowing what was going to happen to him, all of the shame, all of the loss, all of the agony, knowing what was going to happen to him, he says, I am he. I am he. He does it again a few verses later. Verse 8, he says, uh, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And Jesus didn't hide. He turns himself in so that his friends could go free. The, John, the author, he, he put these stories next to each other on purpose. You are supposed to contrast Peter and Jesus in this. To see how Peter lied to save himself and Jesus spoke to the truth to protect other people. This is how you know that Jesus loved you. He knew you would deny him, but he didn't deny you. He knew you'd deny him, but he didn't deny you. This is what gives us incredible hope. Jesus is the one person who knows us fully and he still loved us to death and back. This is the thing. This tells us something deeper about us than the fact that we are sinners. We are sinners, but there's something even more true 
that before your sin and during your sin and after your sin, you are loved. You are loved completely and fully. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he went to the cross for us. He took our consequences and he paid our debt and he died our death. And as he did it, Jesus actually spoke words that he wouldn't take back. It is finished. You are fully known and fully loved. What's more than that, you have a future. Let me show you one more thing. It's something I never noticed. I've read this story many, many times, but it wasn't until this time that I actually saw what was going on. Go back to chapter 13. What I noticed is that Jesus actually made two predictions here. I always focused on the really dramatic one. You're gonna deny me, but I missed the one that came right before it in verse 36. Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. It's kind of a weird thing to say, knowing what he's about to say. You will follow later. That's huge. Before Peter's story fell apart, Jesus assured him, your story's not over. Peter was asked three times, are you this man's disciple? And three times he said, nope, I'm not. But this prediction, in this prediction, Jesus is saying, you're going to have a chance to revise your answer. And the same is true of you and me. Our failure does not stand in the way of God's future for us. 